And remember, Presbyterians only clap in their heart, okay? So. <laughs> well, I, I uh, came all revved up and ready to preach today, and I made a mistake of wearing a tie. Uh, many of you came up, you're looking at me like, what's going on? Who died? Good news is Jesus. But other than that, I'll never wear a tie again. You know, we've heard, we've heard of fat shaming and all that, where I was tie shamed. Uh, so with that being said, uh, I do want to say this. Uh, I've said it before every time, Angela, I've been here and I've talked from the pulpit. This has been a wondrous church for us to come to. It's been wonderful. Uh, we have found deep Christian friendship here, which is unique. We found brothers and sisters in Christ, which is even more unique. And in many ways, well, in fact, in all ways, I'm closer to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, than I am to my own brothers and sisters who aren't believers. Uh, and honestly, I found a mentor here. I've been looking for over 15 years for someone to be willing to pour their life into me. And to Andrew, I found not only a good friend, but a, but a, but a mentor. Because as a recovering Southern Baptist, <laughs> he's been helping detoxify me with all things Presbyterian. But I just want to tell you what a blessing it is here you know, at a church that exalts Jesus Christ and him crucified and believes in the orderly worship of that God through the preaching of the word. On October 31st, 1999, Halloween, at 1.20 in the morning, Egypt Air Flight 990 departed from New York City headed to Cairo, Egypt. Roughly 25 minutes later, at 1.48 a.m., after the jet reached 33,000 feet out over the Atlantic Ocean, as the passengers and crew settled in for their 11-hour flight in the darkened cabin, the pilot left the cockpit for a bathroom break. 39 seconds later, the co-pilot co began to chant in Arabic, I rely on God. I rely on God. I rely on God. And turned and locked the cockpit door. Less than a minute later, he put the jetliner into a zero-G pitchover. So for the pilots in the room, you can imagine Boeing 67 fully loaded for 11-hour flight going into a zero-G pitchover, which means it was weightless as he put it into a nearly vertical nosedive headed towards the Atlantic Ocean. As the plane neared vertical, heading down towards the ocean, almost exceeding the speed of sound, it disintegrated and crashed, taking 217 souls into eternity to meet the one and true God. Did you know that everyone on board that plane had faith? Every single one of them. Gamil al-Batuti had such unswerving faith in Allah that he was willing to crash that plane and die in service to his God. Every passenger on that plane had faith. Faith in the commercial airline industry with its safety checks and psychological evaluations, in its mechanics, air traffic controllers, technology, its backup systems. Faith in governments and legal systems that were supposed to prevent this kind of disaster. Faith in their spouses, their children, their relatives, their friends, their coworkers, faith in themselves. They were bathed in faith, like fish in the ocean. We are faithful beings. We have faith in everything around us. 
think about it this way. They had faith that the other drivers on the way to the airport wouldn't swerve across the center line and kill them. They had faith that the elevator repairman in the airport had done his job correctly. They had faith that the food service workers had good hygiene as they prepared the flight's meal. And as you look at your life, you'll see all the things other than in the Lord Jesus Christ you put your faith in. Many of them, especially the Muslims, believed in God. And everyone on that plane had faith in something. They believed it sincerely. They believed it wholeheartedly. And many of them believed it to the very end. But my guess is most of them in those last terrifying moments knew there had to be something more, something beyond death. Maybe they called it God. Maybe they didn't. But their fear testified against them for they were all afraid of something. For those who lack saving faith in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, nothing, not their sincerity, not their earnestness, not their zeal, not their good works, nothing could shield them. Their worst fears, most horrifying nightmares were surpassed as they were ushered into the presence of the almighty, O holy triune God, who in his justice condemned them to live under the punishment of unbearable damnation for all eternity. Or they live on today, like the rich man in Luke 16, longing for even a drop of water to ease their torment. These are heavy words that speak a, heavy, a heavier truth. What we learn about today is the joy that is in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Precious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that living and active blade, that sword, that is sharper than any sword, which cuts us, pierces us, it examines our hearts and minds, convicts us, and points us always back to your Son, who by him, through him, and for him, all things were created in heaven and earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities. For it is to him that true faith, true saving faith, always points and always rests. In his precious name we pray, amen. So if you would turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, those one of my favorite books, and not my favorite book of the whole Bible, Hebrews 11. Always a good idea as a Christian to go back and read Hebrews because it's a reminder of who we are and what we came from. So if you would turn to Hebrews 11, we're only gonna read two verses. We're gonna read verse one and verse six. So Hebrews 11, verse one. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So my sermon today asks three questions. Question one, what is faith? Question two, what is saving faith? And question three, what or whom must we have faith in? So the Bible speaks a lot about it. Depending on the version you have, King James, New King James, and I, the nearly inspired version, the ESV, uh, the concept is used over 250 times. So obviously it's important. What is faith? So what is it? The book of Hebrews pretty much tells us. Hebrews was a sermon written to a mixed audience, a mixed congregation of Jews, Jewish Christians, and Gentiles who had previously been drawn to Judaism. So I believe Luke wrote this. There's, there's some people who 
argue that, but I believe Luke wrote it as a sermon to this mixed congregation. And he was calling those influenced by Judaism to leave the camp, if you would, to come out all the way, all the way from your previous beliefs, your former beliefs, and come all the way to Jesus in faith. Remember, Hebrews tells us Jesus is greater than any angels, any priests, any of the old covenant practices. He's superior to any of their traditions or rituals. That's what he's laying out before us. This was a form and shadow. You must come out from that now and place your faith in a real thing. Hebrews is saying that Christ is the final revelation of the shapes and shadows and forms in the Old Testament, and that he alone is the object of saving faith, the author and perfecter of true faith. What a glorious truth. So now we know chapter 11, for those who who have read through Hebrews, lists the Old Testament believers that both the recipients of this letter, of this letter 2,000 years ago, and we today recognize, they're sinners who had saving faith. And there's some real boneheaded people in there if you, read, if you read Hebrews 11. But yet they had saving faith. So it's important that we understand what saving faith actually is. Because some of them had faith even leading to death. But they had faith in a promise they had not yet received. It was, it was, in, it was faith in something that was coming. So the author calls the Hebrews in the audience then and us now to place our faith completely in the revealed Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is the sacrifice for our sins. That's the book of Hebrews, kind of to summarize. Okay, with that as background, we can start to answer the three questions. First, what is faith? Okay, what is it? We've all got it. We've all got it in something. What is it? Well, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has set eternity in our hearts meaning that all people everywhere for all time have had a recognition that they are spiritual beings. That something about them will live beyond death. It doesn't, I've traveled, many of you traveled all over the world. I've gone all over the world. Everywhere you go, there will be a religion that tries to answer the question, who am I in the cosmos and how do I get there? Basically those questions. And every other religion in the world other than Christianity says work. In some way, you have to work to get there. Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. And the sociologist Emil Durkheim said that people are faith-making beings. We make faith, like a little engine factory. We make faith, we make faith, we make faith. What they all meant was that everyone had faith in something. And you see it around you. We place our faith in our sports team. We place our faith in in our finances. We place our faith in a financial system. So now to answer the question, what is faith? Well, Merriam-Webster, that authoritative source of theology, defines it as a body of beliefs and practices in something that lies outside of conclusive, conclusive evidence. That's why it's called faith. It's not science. Or a firm belief in the integrity, ability, effectiveness, and genuineness of someone or something that we have faith in. Okay, that's how it defines it. And all these kind of reflect Hebrews 11, But faith in the biblical sense is the hope and assurance that things unseen, because without it, you cannot please God. So the reformers wrestled with this issue. It was really important to them back then because they were wrestling with the idea and in response to a heretical teaching. They wanted to define what is saving faith. And a heretical teaching was saving faith is faith plus something else. Faith plus something else. 
something required by you to add to the faith in whatever this thing you believe in. You have to try really hard. Every other religion in the world is faith plus something else. In response, they created an order of saving faith, kind of an order, a hierarchy of saving faith that contained three components. Now, they were highly educated men. Latin was the language of the, t- of the time that they used to communicate with one another. So the three terms were noticia, ascensus, and fiducia. Basically, here's what they mean. Recognize, acknowledgement, and act of trust. Okay? In effect, they believe that faith was something more than just belief. No. Listen to that. They understood that saving faith was more than just belief. First, in this scheme they designed, we have to recognize, take notice, noticia of and learn something about the object of our faith. We have to see it. Oh, I see it. We come to hear about the things we're supposed to place our faith in. Then step two, we have to give assent to the truth. We have to acknowledge it, ascensia, ascensus. We acknowledge it as true. You know, we come to hear about these things we are supposed to place our faith in. We assent to the truth, and we, act, we intellectually believe it's true, that somehow the object of our faith has merit, that it's true, that it is truly true, and we begin to believe it. But finally, they said, you must go the next step. We must actively entrust ourselves to that truth, placing our faith, our reliance, in it, or on it, or upon it. That's what they, they tried to lay out for us, is that faith is not intellectual belief. That you believe the facts of the Bible. Faith is where then you place your trust, present and future, in that truth. So uh, if you're like me, I did a lot of study here, whatever, you might be saying to yourself, wait a second, wait, that Muslim co-pilot's faith fit all those. He, he, he had learned about Allah. He believed Allah was true. And his faith was so strong, he was willing to die for that belief. He had all three. Was that saving faith? In fact, if you know a lot of people around you, aren't many com- committed believers of other faiths? Don't they fit the three? They learn about it. They acknowledge it. They put their faith in it. So obviously, there's something more. There's something more to saving faith. Doesn't the world say to you, oh, isn't that sweet? All that matters is that you have faith itself. Isn't that sweet? Aw. Oh. So something happens, we hold a candlelight vigil. I always want to say, to whom and for what reason? Something bad happens and a spokesman comes out for the, for the airline or for the, or the company and says, our, our hopes and prayers are with you. Really? To whom are you praying? Okay. So the other thing the world said to us is, have faith in faith itself. So, with that being said, were the reformers wrong? Were they wrong? Well, no. Had they correctly identified the elements of faith, saving faith, without actually clarifying it? Again, no, because they knew that the object of faith, the thing believed in, was more important than the subject of faith, the believer. And that's critical we get their minds around that. We believe in something, that something must be true, and it doesn't matter how sincere you are in believing it if the thing you believe is not true. And they believe that the object, Jesus Christ, has to be true as revealed in the Bible. In other words, 
whatever you choose to place your faith in must actually be true. And the only way to come to know that is through the Bible. Imagine that. No, I, when I, I went to grad school out in Oregon many years ago, and this was actually two statements. The first, they both were outrageous on their face. The first one was the district attorney for the school I was going to in that district said, we will not tolerate intolerance. <laughs> Very typically Oregon. <laughs> the other one that the president of the university said was, you may believe anything you want as long as you do not believe it to be true. Chew on that one for a while. Build up, build up your mandible muscles by chewing on that piece of bubble gum over and over and over. You can believe anything you want as long as you don't believe it to be true. Because once you believe it to be true, it becomes true for everyone. Right? If it's truly true. So that's kind of what the world tells us about faith. Which brings us to question number two. What is saving faith? Okay? If faith itself is recognizing the object of our faith, believing that it's true, and staking our present and our future on that thing, what is actual, authentic, saving faith according to the Bible? Now this is, I'm gonna to try to be a little bit provocative and evocative here. Some, if not many, so-called Christians have part one and part two, but lack part three. They've been taught about Jesus they're aware of the rituals and traditions, and they maybe even make the link between Christmas, Easter, and Jesus. And they might even believe it's true, but they believe. Yeah, I believe. But remember, even the demons believe that God is one and shudder at the thought of their coming judgment. Do you think Satan believes all the truths about Christ? You bet he does. Do you think Satan knows the Westminster Confession forward and backwards? You bet he does. And yet he still rages against God and his children. I want you to think about that. So it's something more than just belief. And in that same spirit, many church members do not have saving faith, but merely mental assent. They believe but don't have faith. Listen to, John, listen to Jesus in John 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus saw that they recognized the miracles. He was performing and they were, they recognized the miracles he was performing and they intellectually believed this guy's special. Maybe he's a prophet. He's a wise man. Wow, this is great. We can follow him to see what we get from him. But he also knew their hearts were selfish. He knew they did not have faith in and upon him. Now, here's my provocative statement. I'm going to fly in the face of, like I said, I'm in recovery from Southern Baptist uh, background. And I want you to think about this statement in the context of the book of Hebrews. Belief is not enough. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, intellectual assent to the facts is not enough. That's very important that you get that because it comes down how we evangelize, how we view our children. Intellectual assent to the facts is not enough. Recognition and mental assent to the facts of Christianity, Christianity isn't going to save you. Participation in the rites and rituals of Christianity, Christianity aren't going to save you. They're not going to save me. In fact, Hebrews 6 and 10 and Jesus' own words 
teach otherwise. Do you know it would be better to have not known the facts, not have recognized the truth, than to deny it and place your faith in something else? That's a very sobering, sobering call. So far we know what saving faith isn't. It isn't denying the facts. It isn't denying that the facts are true. But what is it? In the Bible, real belief and real saving faith are intimately and inseparably linked, like faith and repentance. For instance, listen to Acts 16.31. And they, Paul and Silas, said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in the biblical sense, belief and faith are inextricably woven together and linked in the sense that you then believe it to the point of placing your trust upon Jesus. They involve the recognition of a need for something outside yourself. I am not sufficient. I need something outside myself that only God the Father through the sacrifice of God the Son provides. That's a recognition. Saving faith involves the conviction that nothing in you marries that special sauce, that something. And that only a loving God, loving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can provide it. And saving faith understands that this something is the holiness that God demands. In other words, biblical belief involves seeing your need to be declared holy, worthy, and righteous before God. It involves the hunger, the conviction that God and only God can fulfill that need, can fulfill that need through providing Christ as a sacrifice. And it involves your dependence upon that sacrifice. That is saving faith. There it is. Saving faith, again, is recognition of how far you fall short of the demands of the law. Believing that you cannot fulfill those demands in any way and that a loving God sacrificed his son on your behalf so that those demands were fully met, fully atoned for, so you can be right before God. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great judicial exchange. There it is, right there. Where through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins, God takes the tainted, black, tattered robe that you wear, those sins, and places them on Jesus. And he takes the pure, white, perfect robe of righteousness worn by Jesus and places it on you. So that when he looks upon you, he sees the righteousness of his son. And when he looks upon Christ, he sees your sins. The great judicial exchange. But saving faith that that is not only true, but that you entrust yourself to that is truly saving faith. All right, let me reiterate again. Saving faith is about the object of your faith. Jesus Christ and him crucified to atone for your sins and not the subject of your faith, you and your desires. It involves his obedience and not your own. For we know that we are like sheep have gone astray. All our works are like filthy rags. None of us seek God. It involves his faithfulness and not our own. His faithfulness unto death, his personal, perpetual, perfect obedience to his father, which fulfilled the demands of the law. So we have to faith something outside of ourselves. You catch that? If you look at yourself and say, saving faith is about my faithfulness, you will always fall short. If you look at Christ and say, it's about his faithfulness, his obedience, you will have assurance and rest. So, here comes the question. How much faith do you need to be saved? How much? Can you, you know, think about that. 
12%, 22%, think of a battery, your cell phone. Okay, it's got 1%. Is it gonna work? I need a full charge. How much faith do you actually need to be saved? Well, the answer is very simple. Faith is a mustard seed. Little tiny. So let me ask you a question. Good quiz question. Good theological ordination question. In Exodus, two men heard from Moses that they must slaughter a lamb and sprinkle his blood on their door so that when the angel of death comes to kill the firstborn child, he would pass over their house. Yeah, 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 yeah. Both men slaughtered lamb. Both sprinkled the blood. Both waited in their homes. But one trembled in fear and anxiety while the other waited in peace and joy. Which man's son did the angel spare? One's waiting in terror. The other one, the other one has peace and joy. Which one did he spare? Both. <laughs> it's not about the subjective experience of the believer. It's about the faithfulness of the Savior. Both men's sons were spared, for they both acted in faith. One had faith as a mustard seed. The other one had immense faith. Or remember the father, one of my favorite stories. Can't you hear it as a parent of the demon-possessed boy in Mark 9? He cries out, I believe, help me with my unbelief. That, my friends, is saving faith. How amazing, what a truth. Remember this, if you remember nothing else. It was the quality of their faith that saved them, not the quantity. It was the object of their faith that saved them, a faithful God, a loving Savior, and not the subject of their faith, their own weak and wavering flesh and emotions that saved them. There is no more glorious truth for the struggling believer or more healing balm for the non-believer than that of a willing Savior. There is no terrifying bridge you have to cross. There is not, unlike Islam, an angel that's waiting to push you off. You know, it's a gangplank that you walk and you walk in the plank and the angel's waiting to push you off for one mistake. You have a willing, loving Savior. What a glorious truth. Amen? I had to get that in an old Southern Baptist thing. <laughs> so here you go. Thus from the little seeds spring such blessing, such limitless fellowship with the triune God, such peace and joy. Romans 5.1, we all know it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Think back about every crisis in your life. Every crisis you've ever experienced, witnessed, or heard about. What do they all have in common? You. No. <laughs> What do they all have in common? Well, they all share this reality. Crisis from a Christian perspective is defined as having faith in the wrong object, wrong person, or wrong system. Every crisis you ever had is because you had faith in the wrong thing. If you have faith in the right thing, it's not a crisis. So for instance, when I was young in the faith, my mentor told me, there's no bad news for the Christian, just good news you haven't realized yet because your faith is not in yourself, outside yourself in the world, world systems, world governments, world airlines, world anything, it's, a play, it's placed upon the Savior. You know, faith in things of this world will always let you down. 
always fall short, always fail to satisfy, always lead you into a crisis. If Egypt Air 990, the pilots in here probably remember that. If Egypt Air 990 taught us anything, if the, do you remember those of you who were alive, the shock of 9-11? If 9-11 showed us anything, they testified that we are faith-making beings who desperately want to have faith in something, anything, be it governments or laws or people or technology, that allows us to have faith, but not true faith, that makes us confront the Savior. I mean, you could make the point that 9-11, our response to it was really because we had our faith in our military and our financial system, our invincibility. And then when a bunch of people in a plane showed us, no, no, that's just empty. We were in shock as a nation. So, how does that faith grow? Sociologist Peter Berger notes that faith is magnified by the distance between the object and the subject. It doesn't take a lot of faith for you to step across three inches. But it takes a lot of faith when that thing you're trusting is far away. And he says that in history, he's a, he's a sociologist for religion. That magnifies faith. The greater the distance, the greater the faith required to trust it. What do I mean by that? As you magnify, study, contemplate the perfections and truths of God as revealed in Scripture, you see how awesome he is and how not you are. It builds him up and diminishes you. It creates this gulf. That's one of the points of the law. It shows us God and how we're not him. And it creates this gulf that says, wow, I can't do it and the world can't do it. That's what fosters that faith. So magnifying the faith illuminates our need for a bridge across that divide. Magnifying that distance creates an unsolvable problem, and here it is. We are called to be perfect and holy, and we can't be. We stand judged and condemned for our sins, but God, being rich in mercy, provided a solution. That's faith in Jesus Christ. By seeing God as he is and seeing ourselves as we are, and then seeing the sacrifice to reconcile us to God, we have the seeds of faith. They may be small, They'll be mustard seed, but they're there. Now, here we go. I'm going to Medlin. All the mantras, all the chants, all the Awana clubs, all the VBSs, all the catechisms in the world can at most only make two-thirds of a Christian. <laughs> kind of like the Dred Scott case, slaves are two-thirds of a person. All these efforts can only create two-thirds of a Christian. They can, they can instill recognition and belief. They can, be, they can even bring us to the edge of that bridge, which is Christ. But without the faith, but without saving faith, the end result is one of two things. A despondent apostate who falls away or self-righteous Pharisees who drive others away. Those are the only two outcomes without saving faith for people who stay in the church. They're either despondent apostates, they fall away, and we've all known people like this, they're embittered by the church, because of the hypocrisy, the emptiness of hollow faith, or self-righteous Pharisees who feel they figured it out. I've got it all down. It's helpful to remember how easy it is for Christian parents to raise little Pharisees who lack saving faith. It's very, very easy to do. It's a personal experience. We had four kids. And every Christian parent desperately wants them to come to a saving knowledge of the faith. We just desperately want it. You want to see your kids reconciled to God. And you know, when they're little, 
Don't, it's kind of neat, isn't it? When they're little, they really yearn to please us. Eh, not so much so the older they get, but, <laughs> but sooner they litter. You know how it is, dads. That daughter looks to you like every woman should have looked at you in your life. They just love you, right? And the son, dad, you're my hero. Take me out and let's kill something. <laughs> they yearn to please you. So the danger is this. Our children may parrot the precious doctrines and teachings we've given them. They may practice the rituals and liturgies. They may be able to sing without the hymnal. Imagine that. But without saving faith, they may have assented to the truth. They may have assented the truth, but without saving faith, they will not see God. Full stop. And the same is true of all non-believers we evangelize. It's not just children. It's every not. It's every non-believer we go to. It is only saving faith in the Christ revealed in Scripture alone graciously given and freely bestowed that saves the sinner and brings glory to God. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. All those efforts are valuable tools to teach truths to the children. They are. It's a very good thing, by the way. But we should never overlook the call to saving faith. And don't get me wrong. One of the strengths of the Reformed faith of the confessional church to which we belong is that it exalts the sovereignty of God. What a glorious truth and comforting truth. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. But that strength can also be, can also be a weakness because you can stress God's sovereignty to the exclusion of human responsibility. God doesn't believe for you. He doesn't have the faith for you. He doesn't believe for you. You must see the truth of Christ. You must believe the truth of Christ. And you must place your faith in the truth of, truth of Christ, uh, Christ as a mustard seed. And that is saving faith. I'll I'll close with a harrowing true story that is truly Jameson for those who know the Jamesons. This is harrowing. Years ago, my son and I were hiking along the rugged cliffs of the Oregon coast at Cape Lookout. If anybody may have been there, the Oregon coast, particularly the northern coast, is very treacherous, very high cliffs going down the Pacific Ocean. So we're hiking out along Cape Lookout, which is a two-mile hike, out to a point where you stand 500 feet above the Pacific Ocean. Well, there was a secret renegade trail that very few people knew about that went over the guardrail down the cliff to a really cool sea cave down at the ocean that went back up into that cliff. So to get there, you had to climb over this cable railing, take this trail down a sheer rotten rock wall, and then edge face to face for about 100 feet. So you're clinging against the wall for about 100 feet going down to the rocks at the bottom. So imagine looking down, seeing the ocean waves rise and fall, winds blowing, ocean waves rising and falling, hearing them crash on the rocks below you as you face the cliff, looking for that handhold foothold going down. It's pretty rotten rotten rock. But on the way down, during a particularly sketchy, dicey place on the cliff, my son froze in terror. Okay, he could not move. He couldn't follow me down to where I was, so I reached out my hand, calmly telling him, reach out and take it. Take my hand. I'll protect you. I was literally talking him off the ledge. He stayed pinned to the wall. He couldn't climb back up because he didn't know how. It was technical climbing. And he wouldn't climb down because his fear had paralyzed him. He saw the predicament he was in. He recognized it. He was little. He understood what would happen if he messed up. 
one false step, he was going to fall to his death. Very clearly. Okay? But stay put in the understood, he's eventually going to weaken and fall anyway. <laughs> so what to do? He heard me saying, reach out. Reach out. Take my hand. I'll lead you to safety. I led you here. I'll certainly take care of you. I led you here. Take my hand. And actually, my wife, Angela, took a picture of this. It's a stunning photo. As I'm against the cliff, reaching out to him, and he's clinging that cliff, kind of putting his hand out, but terrified to do so. Slowly, he came to see that he must trust me, that he had to reach out and take my hand, that there was no other way to live, and that all other choices led to death. He reached out. I took him, and we made it safely. How much faith was necessary in his part? He saw the dilemma. He knew what would happen. He hesitated. He doubted. He flinched. But he did act in faith. He did reach out. And I did take him. I didn't reject him, but welcomed him with loving, if relieved and sinful, human arms. I know Andrew and Ashley are saying, never let the kids hike with Wes. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 with that as a conclusion, I close with this. All of the Bible contains these glorious truths and point to this wondrous reality. We are justified by faith alone, made members of the great witness of believers by faith, called children of the Heavenly Father by faith, and find peace with God both now and forevermore by faith. We live in a fallen world. We live in a place where things happen. We live in a place where things we kind of put our faith in fall away. It could be spouses. It could be children. It could be our jobs, our government, our military. But there is a source that we can put our faith in that will never fall away. And that saving faith says, Jesus, you are more. Like the Hebrews, it says, you are more, more than any angel, more than any prophet, more than the government, more than the military, more than my finances. I place my faith in you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this chance to bring the word to such a loving congregation. Thank you for a chance just to just to talk about, discuss, and open up your word in uh, that letter to the Hebrews, the sermon that was given so many thousands of years ago and yet is so relevant today. Lord, we do pray. Help us to see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, and to follow you more nearly. For Father, we know that in you, in your Son, and through the Holy Spirit, we have eternal life and peace. In Jesus' name. Amen.